Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. What if a problem is so big that nothing in your toolbox seems to be able to fix it? The country, America, cannot keep its place in the world, cannot be the leadership nation we want it to be in the next century, allowing the development of a permanent underclass. Henry Cisneros had encountered what, to many people, was exactly that sort of problem. I think the time is shorter than we might think. We cannot lose another generation of our young people. We cannot relegate people to reservations, modern reservations we call the cities, and we cannot lose this investment we have made that is so critical to our national economy. Cisneros had been the mayor of San Antonio in the 1980s, and then in the early 1990s, he joined the Clinton administration. And the problem he saw as enormous, something that we still struggle to address, was poverty in America. But to fix a problem, you have to know what tools work. Cisneros, who was the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, thought a lot about geography, where poor people lived, and how much those places affected their income. If one of the tools in your toolbox was that you could pick a family up and put them somewhere else, would their income go up just because of where they lived? For Cisneros, the question was pressing. The economy was rough, President Clinton's approval ratings were low, and many urban neighborhoods were on edge. In 1992, major riots had erupted in Los Angeles after the police beating of a man named Rodney King. The incident was taped by an onlooker, aired on television, and the policemen who did it were found not guilty. Demonstration there been going on this afternoon and tonight. Police are moving in on somebody. More than 60 people died in those riots in L.A., and the National Guard and the Marines were sent in. But in the middle of the tragedy, the Rodney King riots refocused America's attention. And for a brief period, that created substantial political interest in problems of central cities, race and opportunity in the U.S., that's Lawrence Katz, who's now a professor of economics at Harvard University. But in 1993, he had joined the Clinton administration as the chief economist of the U.S. Department of Labor. And in 92, there had passed a urban and housing bill that had created a little bit of demonstration money to try to test different strategies to help families living in high poverty concentrated poverty areas, and we were tasked a multi-agency group with the Department of Housing and Urban Development to try to come up with interesting possible ideas to test. And one of those ended up being this moving to opportunity demonstration. So amidst all this tumult, this was also the height of the crack cocaine epidemic and a time when murder rates were just about double what they are now, the Clinton administration started an experiment to see if they could break the cycle of poverty an experiment to figure out what factors in people's lives make a big difference to future earnings and which don't. Katz and his colleagues studied three groups to test this question. The first group got normal public housing assistance, which tended to place people in big urban housing developments where pretty much everyone around them was also getting public housing assistance. The second group got vouchers to help them rent their own places, and vouchers like that were not uncommon at the time. But, Kat says, people who got those vouchers tended to stay in the general neighborhood but just move out of public housing projects. And then there was the last group. 
The third group, which we called the experimental group or the moving to opportunity group, got a voucher, but they were required, they had to use it to move to a low poverty area, starting in areas with a poverty rate over 50 percent, some of the poorest areas in the U.S. They had to move to an area with an under 10 percent poverty rate, but we gave them help to try to move with housing counselors. And the big questions are, one, could you actually move a low-income family with housing voucher to higher opportunity, low poverty areas? And then, two, what would it actually do for you? That question of what would it do for you to move it was a big one, an important one, and one that was going to take a long time to answer. Because if you move a 10-year-old and his family from a high-poverty area to a low-poverty area, and you're trying to figure out if that's going to affect his income, well, you're going to have to sit back and wait for 15 or 20 years, which is pretty much what happened. But there were hints of what might be coming. There was garbage, junk on the outside of the buildings. Even in kindergarten, first grade, my daughters would get beat up on the way home from school. They were becoming not violent, but on the defense. Valencia Morris lived with her three daughters in public housing in Chicago in the 1970s. And, as she told Retro Report, she wanted to get out. We'd had some 18,000 public housing apartments built almost exclusively in black neighborhoods. There was pervasive housing discrimination in the private market. Realtors would not show you white neighborhoods. If you got to a white neighborhood, a landlord wouldn't rent to you. Lawyer Alex Polikoff went to court to try to change the course of public housing, and the case reached the Supreme Court in 1976 which was when Chicago was ordered to change the way it dealt with public housing. Some residents were given vouchers to live in urban areas. Others were randomly placed into mostly white suburbs, generally just a few families in one town, to minimize the backlash. Valencia Morris's daughters, years later, remembered how different the new suburban schools were. There was so much that we were able to do. Our high school had a full-size professional stage. We had a music program. We had all of the state-of-the-art sports equipment you could ever want. The Morrises were glad they moved, but the kids also felt isolated, and the family ultimately came back to Chicago. Kia Morris returned to the city as a teenager. Here she is with her mom. I needed to just be around a diverse community. I wasn't necessarily accepted by all of the white friends that I had, and I was too white in some levels for the black kids that had moved into the community since then. She grew up in the suburbs, so as far as knowing African Americans, she didn't really know how we are. So I said, I need to get back into Chicago before she loses her identity. The court-ordered switch in how Chicago approached public housing appeared to show that kids who had moved to the suburbs graduated from high school at higher rates and were less likely to be on welfare, which inspired those like economist Lawrence Katz to scientifically establish how exactly people's lives were changing and why. His study would be called Moving to Opportunity, and it would involve five cities—Chicago, Baltimore, Los Angeles, Boston, and New York. The study would take some unexpected turns. It would face resistance, and the results would surprise even the people working on it. Partially because what looked to be the results after the first few years 
turned out to be very different a couple of decades in. But, Kat says, the project stirred up questions from the beginning, even within the government, because it involved telling a whole group of people, you have to move out of your neighborhood. We'll help you. We will provide housing counselors to get you an apartment. But you have to move. Lots of controversy, lots of worry. Many of the families initially who won the lottery but got the restricted voucher that you had to move to lower poverty, higher opportunity areas were actually a little upset that they hadn't got the more flexible voucher. Although after they actually met with the counselors and started getting opportunities to move and had moved to new neighborhoods, they had very different sort of attitudes. They seemed much happier. They often uh, told us they would never have thought of moving to this type of neighborhood, but the fact that they had to do so was something that would be very beneficial. But, you know, this was clearly, you know, there are worries both for these families themselves. They're moving to different neighborhoods. And what we found is in that time period, the very big motivating factor of wanting to move was a time of a lot of violent crime and danger as they were really looking for safer neighborhoods. And so they were actually quite able and willing to move. And that's one thing we saw very big, quick changes is criminal victimization rates and, you know, fear went down a lot in moving to sort of safer neighborhoods was what they were looking for. So, Um, President Clinton, who was your ultimate boss at that time, did he know about this study? And was he concerned at all about, again, you're just kind of like rolling the dice a little bit with people's lives. And he does, you know, politics and he doesn't know what's going to happen. uh, In fact, there were very interesting politics associated with he was, you know, he was on top of other things. He was aware of this. We were also working on place based policies that became empowerment zones that same group that tried to invest in these poor communities. Um, He and Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Henry Cisneros, clearly knew. And there actually was at one point of time in 1995 a little bit of a movement in Baltimore to get rid of the program because of people, not the families moving, but people in areas that were fearful that low-income people who might look different than them would move to their areas. And in fact, there was some talk radio sort of action and a second round of moving to opportunity that we thought would be a possibility never got funded because of the political reaction. But it didn't distort our ability to take this first group who, as I said, half of them ended up moving and almost all of those persisted for many years in the new neighborhoods. Do you remember any particular families or conversations? Like, does anything stick in your mind, like a story that you can talk about? There were two things that struck me from talking to a couple of families. One actually became the title of one of our papers on this, of the more qualitative work called Bullets Don't Got No Name, to describe the feeling of sort of relief and worry of being a victim of random violence and the sort of neighborhood they came from relative to the sort of place. The other was the sense that, 24-7, 24-7, these were you know, mainly single female-headed households. Mothers felt they had to protect their kids in a set of relief that their kid could go out and play and go to school and back and not be so concerned about whether they would come back were the striking things. And a sense that I would never have done this if, you know, I'd had the regular voucher, but I'm so happy 
that I moved to this area. Not all. There were certainly a, a lot of the teenage kids were very upset at being separated. The younger kids seemed much more able to adapt, which is something that turned out that we saw following over the next 20 years. Okay, so this starts in the mid-90s, but all along, the people who are conducting this experiment are sort of checking in and finding out what's happening with these families. So, you know, a decade-ish in, mid-2000s now, early 2000s, how did it seem like things were going? You've got these five cities, these groups. Everything has been surprising in what we saw. So what many social scientists and policymakers expected is that moving to better opportunity neighborhoods would quickly lead to improved economic circumstances for the families. That's not what we saw. The adults did not seem to have any improvement in their ability to get jobs or their income, so there was tremendous disappointment that it was not moving to opportunity. On the other hand, what we were seeing is they were happy. Their health was improving dramatically. So this is a group with very high rates of depression, high rates of obesity and stress-related disorders. So safety and being in a more tranquil neighborhood was showing things that looked incredibly positive on their mental health and physical health, but it didn't translate. The kids were clearly safer. They were not On standardized tests, they weren't doing much better in school, but they seemed to be less involved in violent crime. And so we got a lot of blowback from many economists that, well, now we don't have to worry about neighborhoods. We don't know. We know they don't matter. And from many other social scientists saying, oh, this really isn't a good experiment. You didn't change their neighborhoods enough, even though we'd really change people living sort of in the lowest few percent of neighborhoods in terms of income to sort of the middle of the distribution. What we were saying is, you know, if we want to see the effects on kids, if someone moved at five or eight, even 10 years later, they're not old enough to see what their adult outcomes are. And so we pressed and we had to work a lot. You know, since the funding from the federal government ended in 10 years, we had to work with a lot of private foundations and grant makers, despite the disappointment of the findings, to help support a longer term analysis to see what happened to the kids. Okay, so we're going to pause here for just a minute. Uh, We're going to come back with Lawrence Katz, the former chief economist of the U.S. Department of Labor. And we'll look at how the results of the moving to opportunity study, which seemed clear 10 years after the study started, how those results then started to change. This whole segment is at our website, innovationhub.org. You can also get the podcast through Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be right back in just a minute. You're listening to Innovation Hub from WGBH and PRI. I'm Kara Miller. In 1964, as the conflict in Vietnam ramped up, President Lyndon Johnson declared, in a far more formal way, another war, a war on poverty. It will not be a short or easy struggle. No single weapon or strategy will suffice. But we shall not rest until that war is won. Just about 30 years later, when President Bill Clinton was sworn into office, the war had not been won. And the question of what weapons and strategies could be best used to alleviate poverty that question was still in the midst of being answered. But Lawrence Katz was working on it. We knew from 
both observation of the world and from a lot of data, that kids who grew up in somehow better, higher opportunity neighborhoods did a lot better than other kids. Families in such situations were healthier and did better economically. Katz was the chief economist at the U.S. Department of Labor in the early 1990s when the Clinton administration began. And he saw growing divides economically, racially, geographically. And a big question is how much was that were neighborhoods themselves and places where you grew up and where you um, tried to look for work important factors in economic and health outcomes and barriers to opportunity. And the worry is that while it sort of makes common sense to think that your neighborhood environment matters, you could also do similar observations with lots of things. People who wear more expensive clothes have kids who do better and have better jobs, but that doesn't mean if I give you more expensive clothes, you're going to do better. You know, people who go to fancier restaurants also do better economically. So the worry is that people who could just afford to be in better neighborhoods, their kids would do better otherwise than they would. And so what we needed was some experiment to truly say if we randomly changed the possibility for some group of people to move to better neighborhoods, would we see their outcomes differ? And that's exactly the sort of experiment that Katz helped to start. It would take place in five cities, Baltimore, Boston, Los Angeles, New York, and Chicago, and it would track poor families that got vouchers to move to low-crime neighborhoods. What would happen to those families, to their health, to their kids' educations, to their earnings? The study was called Moving to Opportunity, and it launched in the mid-1990s. Ten years in, so now we're at the early 2000s, the people who had moved were healthier and safer. Kids did not, though, seem to be doing much better on standardized tests, and parents' earnings had not really been boosted. Plenty of people weren't that impressed with the Moving to Opportunity study. Then, a few years ago, Katz and his colleagues did another check-in, a 20-year check-in to see how the families who had moved out of high-poverty neighborhoods had fared, compared with families who mostly had accepted traditional housing assistance and stayed in those neighborhoods. And what we found was something that, look, you know, for the adults, even 20 years out, it wasn't changing their economic outcomes. For the kids who moved, you know, like at 18, it didn't really seem to matter very much. But for the kids who'd had long exposure to the new neighborhoods, it had huge effects. They were much more likely to go to college. They were earning 30 percent uh, more you know, in very different types of jobs when they were 25 than the control group or the Section 8 group. They themselves were less likely to be teen parents, more likely to be living in stable households. And when they formed a household on their own, they were living in better neighborhoods and their kids were healthier and doing better. Um, 30% seems like earning a lot more money than the control group. This is what happened to those kids 20 years later. Do you personally have an explanation or is there a broader explanation for why one group is earning 30% more than another group? Yeah, I mean, part of it is they got some more college training. What we know is that it's not showing up on the traditional education measures of standardized test scores. There we don't see much difference, but it seems to show up more on things you might call social skills, things you might call second chance opportunities. So a kid in a less distressed neighborhood 
who acts out in school may not be given up on in the same way. They might not be you know, forced to drop out. There are more resources and help. There are a lot more second chances is one hypothesis we saw. So two kids might have done a youthful, silly property crime. And in a low-income area, it's very difficult. You just don't have the resources or ability to personally look after every kid who had a problem. Whereas in these neighborhoods, there was more of a sense in which you weren't scarred for those types of activities. There was more of a norm of going on to sort of college. And, you know, we were also seeing things that seemed somewhat superficial. We had voice recordings on language and sort of you might think of the ability to sound like someone, an employer would be interested in hiring. So they were getting into a different group of jobs. Employers were more willing to take chances with them. The education institution was. So it's not, you know, that we were blowing away on math test scores by moving. It was much more this set of networks, connections, you know, social adaptability that seem to be very important for entry into jobs that have upward mobility possibilities. See, that's really interesting because I think a lot of people would think that you know, part of what high-income areas have to offer are really good school systems, right? So if you can take a kid out of a poor school system and put them into a fancy school system, a public, um, uh, they will get higher scores. They'll be, you know, better educated, and they'll, and they'll go on to make more money. And what you're saying is, like, well, when you compare the group that, you know, stayed where it was um, and the group that moved to these low-poverty areas, these these fancier school systems— they didn't do much better on tests, but they still earned a whole bunch more money. Yeah, they seem to, we often call this non-cognitive skills, you know, things that are set. I mean, they do a little better, but it wasn't the driving force. That doesn't mean that better schools can't impact it because it turns out that because the way these vouchers, special voucher was set up, it was targeting the poverty of the area, not the schools, that the change in the neighborhood was bigger than the change in the schools for two reasons. Often you were living at the edge. You know, where could you go with a voucher in a upper middle class neighborhood? Well, you end up in the apartment right on the edge that's actually in a different attendance zone. Think of the neighborhood change from like the bottom 5% to like the 40th percentile neighborhood. The schools were a bit better for the kids because there was a lot of school choice already in these school districts. So in Boston, it wasn't so much tied. The schools went from sort of the 15th percentile in the control group to sort of the 2025th. So the schools changed a bit in safety and stuff. But the test scores, this wasn't a great test of massively changing your school, but it was a good test of massively changing your neighborhood environment. This study, the Moving to Opportunity study, has been talked about as like this seminal study. I mean, obviously it went on for a really long time. It's it's hard to get things like this off the ground, and it's it's even harder to follow what happens to especially little children as they become adults. What do you think is important about this study when you kind of look back at a good chunk of your life spent thinking about it and following these families? Well, I, I think it what it says is, you know, there's both a for doing science, you know, you need to stick to things. If your hypothesis is about what happens in the long run, you need to look at the long run. You don't want to give up with interim results when you have a hypothesis about the long run. It what it tells us about the world is that 
place and neighborhood environments are incredibly important for children's outcomes, and it seems to be a cumulative process. The younger you move, the longer the exposure to a safer, sort of more integrated environment, the bigger the impacts. There is a clear disruption effect if you move, say, just as a teenager and don't get much exposure. That's overcome. There is a disruption effect for young kids, but that's overcome for years of improved. So better access to sort of educational and job opportunities are incredibly beneficial. For adults, neighborhoods matter a lot. You know, your environment tremendously affects your well-being and your health. Your labor market outcomes are more determined at the broader metropolitan area than at the exact location you're living. That doesn't mean there aren't a lot of things that can help, you know, low-income adults, but that's much more working on your education, training, and directly in the labor market than it is on the neighborhood where you live. But the neighborhood matters extremely for children. I should mention something that's really important, which is those kids who were little when the moving to opportunity study started in the 90s, um, but then grew up and, and made 30 percent more than their than their comparable peers who had been in the high poverty areas. My understanding is that the income that the government got from taxes on those children who then became adults um, more than made up for the cost of helping their families yes. move to these low yeah. poverty areas. So our estimates, you know, again, under the assumption, and this is a big assumption, we can't prove that yet because they're in their, you know, 30s, not in their 60s. If the income gains we see stayed at the same rate through the rest of their lifetimes, which seems plausible, they've been, you know, gone seven, eight years, the typical kid would make about $300,000 more from this move. And if you think about the increased tax revenue, which is present discounted value, discounting it at sort of a market interest rate, about $80,000, and you think of the tax revenue, that's more than the several thousand dollars it costs to help them move. So does that say to you then, I mean, if if we more than make up for it in the end, we should be handing out vouchers all over the place. I mean, th- this worked. Why not scale it up? I Well, I think there is a lot of interest in trying to do that. And, you know, there are two things we we should be thinking about. Certainly, we should be thinking about with our existing voucher program, helping more families with these modest upfront costs, use them more effectively to get to better neighborhoods. And in fact, one of the nice things from the publicity this study got is it was taken very seriously and there was bipartisan support in a recent budget bill to give HUD um, some extra resources to facilitate more cities doing the type of housing mobility program we're currently working with Seattle and King County to do. So that's one modest thing. The other would be, as I said, many years waiting lists for housing vouchers, you know, and a huge housing affordability problem. Expanding vouchers targeted at families with young kids would seem to be a very beneficial policy that we should be doing for low-income families. Larry Katz is a professor of economics at Harvard University. He's also a research associate with the National Bureau of Economic Research. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you, Carol. I appreciate it. That question of why not expand the Moving to Opportunity study if it works so well, if it essentially paid for itself, Well, a kind of expansion is being tried, as Katz mentioned, in King County, which is where Seattle is. Researchers found that many of those who receive ordinary government vouchers from a housing lottery want to move away from their current neighborhood, but very few do. And so we're taking the families who are lucky enough to win the lottery 
and we're giving extra help to a random subgroup of that. And for those people, extra help can be critical because even though they've just won a government lottery, a big move is often still out of reach. Even though we spend $1,500 a month on the housing voucher, we don't give typically much upfront money just to make the security deposit to move to a better neighborhood or the small additional moving costs or just the liquidity to pay a $1,500 application fee. If you want to read more about what's being tried in the Seattle area and how it's going, we've got that story for you on our website, innovationhub.org. <laughs>